Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Kalecki. And today we're talking about Death's Door. Developed by Acid Nerve and published by Devolver Digital, it was released for all the modern consoles in 2021, although it did have a brief exclusivity period with the uh, Xbox and Windows set. Uh, This did come out on Game Pass too, right? Yeah, eventually came to Game Pass, which is uh, not where I played it. I managed to find a way to buy it before it came to Game Pass, uh, despite being a subscriber, which is increasingly common for me, unfortunately. (laughs) Curse you for supporting the developers. (laughs) Hey, I think Game Pass is supporting them too, but yeah, I hear you. (laughs) Um, You know, just a heads up too, as we uh, go into the discussion, we'll be talking some spoilers, so uh, keep that in mind if you're sensitive. Uh, Game runs, yeah, maybe seven to eight hours something along that so if you uh feel the need to go ahead and play it before it's a great game the uh game was developed as we said by acid nerve who are a manchester-based studio of basically two people uh, mark foster and david fenn uh, who previously uh, came to game dev prominence by releasing titan souls back in 2015 also released by devolver digital yeah, Devolver uh, being the publisher on this one, you know, I, I think we've we've done several Devolver games, and they continue to have our number, uh, having the high polish, high gloss, really fun indie games that we all love. Uh, so uh, they found yet another one. Uh, <laughs> surprise, surprise. Well, I feel like more so than most other publishers, maybe Paradox Interactive accepted. Uh, Devolver definitely has a style of games they're going for, and they really deliver well with those. Yeah, that's true. Uh, looking at their their sort of overall catalog, they definitely like seem to find these like really tight, polished indie, you know, a, a lot of them action based games, and um, they definitely have a way to like get things that are are like this out to the right people. Like all these games seem to do pretty well. Not that I think these folks at Acid Nerve necessarily needed the additional uh, boost, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure it helped. But they, they already had a successful hit on their hands with Titan Souls. Uh, I think that one was with Devolver as well, too. I heard um, when they went back to Devolver uh, pitching Death's Door, Devolver's like, finally, you guys got back to us. <laughs> We've been waiting for a pitch. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. I mean, I, I don't know if you played Titan Souls, but I did. And it was it was fun. It was hard. Um, but I guess that was kind of the thing, right? They wanted to make a, um, a really a game about mastery. And uh, I think they succeeded with Titan Souls in that regard. I've not played it myself, but it is on my Steam backlog of shame. <laughs> Ever expanding. It, it always is uh, expanding, that is. But yeah, it's worth mentioning that they did have a, a slightly expanded team from just the two of them that worked on this. Uh, you know, the just made by two guys always comes with that big old asterisk that says, oh, by the way, we also had uh, two contracted concept artists, a modeler, a composer, a sound designer, and um, <laughs> my great-great-grandma who baked us cookies every Friday night. Um, so <laughs> don't, don't count out those cookies. Vital to success. Exactly. Um, but you, you know, it shows in the product, like this is uh, extremely high polished game. Um, despite the fact that it emerged from a game jam and then sort of went viral. And, and as you said, Devolver approached them and said, Hey, pitch this to us. Let's make it, let's make this happen. Um, it, uh, it, it, in the final product, it is extremely, uh, well realized. Did death store come from a game jam? I knew that Titan souls did. Oh yeah, that's right. And this game was maybe, or was that they wanted to do a more 3D experiment-based thing. 
I, I found it interesting that, you know, they wanted to sort of take that that next step and, and go into the 3D realm, although it, it really panned out to be more of an isometric 3D thing. Which is an interesting kind of choice. I feel like we haven't seen a lot of isometric 3D games before because um, an isometric camera isn't a true like 3D perspective camera too. So you got to do some tricks to get it to work. But it does recall some of those old school games that you might have grown up with. The interesting thing is the game, while spending most of its time in that isometrics, does betray um, the fact that it is full realized 3D and that sometimes the camera will just rotate. Like you'll go around the corner, it'll rotate, and you'll realize that, oh wow, this whole thing is actually modeled in 3D. And there's a little secret passage you can go down or some hidden little treat to find. Yeah, it seems like doing a lot more work for um, what is mostly a fixed perspective, but hey, you know, who am I to... Uh, lecture them on how to design their game. It's obviously <laughs> gorgeous. Uh, you know, you could take one look at this game and realize that it uh, is a real looker as far as uh, these indie action games go. It has a really distinct style, and you know, for my money, it's uh, it's really gorgeous. So why are we playing this game? <laughs> Besides, we've both owned it and said, oh, this would be a good one to check out. Um, I heard myself that this game won a number of awards last year. Like, it wasn't just a good game, but it was like, you know, some people called it Game of the Year last year. Yeah, it, it was definitely on my radar for that reason, you know, the critical acclaim and, and the fact that I had some history with the developer. But um, I think the, the main thing that I... Uh, thought was interesting about it. It was it was a game that was born out of taking an extremely limited scope item and then expanding it out. You know, Titan Souls obviously extremely tight. You know, they have their controls and mechanics down. They had a super intense scope focus, and then they were um, on their their second run, looking to expand on that and see how far they could take what they had developed there. And I think. Um, they didn't sacrifice anything in terms of polish by doing this expansion, for, from my uh, perspective. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, I believe when it was first started, it, it was prototyped on the road by Mark Foster, and he had a sort of idea of doing a theme of death and doors, uh, which, hey, you know, death's door, it's right in the title. Um, but apparently, during development, difficulty became a point of contention. It was just far too difficult. And being a follow-up to Titan Souls, which was pretty difficult, that is saying something. <laughs> <laughs> this game, yeah, the um, the combat in this game is very tight and very polished. I was kind of surprised at the difficulty of the combat, given the simplicity, almost, of the enemies and the enemy patterns. Like, um, when you're going through that first level, the uh, cemetery, the Lost Cemetery, mm -hmm. I was thinking, oh, this combat is simple, like, too simple. Simple is a bad word. Um, but by the time you're in the um, Urn Witch's Manor, and you're doing that first avarice treasure chest battle, oh, man. you realize how... They stack these simple enemies on top of each other in such a way that it demands a lot of skill in order to navigate their attacks effectively. Absolutely. It is uh, a, a game that's all about taking simple things and like really driving them towards their conclusion and um, the basically the extent to which the complexity can be derived from that, which is simple. Uh, in terms of the the combat, um, but maybe before we dive a little more deeper into 
what you're you're doing in this game as far as the combat etc let's set the stage right so in death's door you play as a crow and maybe that didn't come across right in our initial sort of discussion about an isometric and an adventure game but yeah you're a crow and you are a an reaper. isometric cur- crow <laughs> that's right you're an isometric uh. crow who is uh working as a reaper collecting souls for the reaping commission which is sort of a bureaucratic office-like afterlife group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they um, really kind of play this up to, like, the intro to the game. Um, you aren't doing any combat or anything. You are arriving at the bus stop to work, and you have to go through the security gate, and, you know, you talk to Fred over there, and you stop by the office sushi bar. I mean, I'm, I wish my office had a sushi bar, but can't be as cool as these crows are. And then there's a, you know, there's the crow at the office who just loves filling out forms. Like, they had a great sense of humor in this game that I'll that we'll get into later, but right off the bat, you're, it really just kind of um, sets a stage as, like, death as bureaucracy. You're absolutely right about that great sense of humor, but it's it's a really moody vibe. Like, it starts off sort of like noir plus fairy tale, right? Like, you have the hard-boiled detective agency, plus it's also like you're the Grim Reaper and you're meeting all of these other fantastic fairy tale-like creature. Um, honestly, like, it starts off black and white. You're dealing a lot with death. This could be a really grim story, but for the humor that's, uh, you know, infused throughout all of the writing. So I'm really glad that's there, um, because otherwise this would feel a little, a little weird. Um, all in all, I think the whole game could feel really disjointed if it wasn't so well written and realized. Um, thinking about all the different areas and how disparate they are in their sort of, um, thematic and tonal and even stylistic choices for how they're they're implemented but it all seems to hold together way more than i would have expected it to i don't know i think talking about the different areas uh, like i feel that they held together thematically from a, and from a mechanics perspective but in terms of narrative uh, like what happens is you find this old crow at this sealed door and he sends you on a quest to reap three great souls they're called uh three bosses you gotta hunt down and fight and reap and get their souls so you can open this door um i felt like those areas were well written and everything but like narratively not a whole lot connecting the plot like there was a little bit with the errand witch about like experiments going on and everything um but really, the narrative was like interstitial stuff. You'd get a little little drops of lore on the areas between levels rather than like, oh, I'm chasing a bad guy through the swamps, so that's why I'm in the swamps. Yeah, yeah. No, you're, you're right. And I think to a person who hasn't played Titan Souls, that would seem to be the case. Um, <laughs> but they do this thing, and we can talk more about this later, where they sort of make some initial slight nods to titan souls and then as you go on throughout the game that nod increases in frequency from a slight nod to a full scale like head seizure type of nod where they're (laughs) fully like saying oh this is a direct reference to what something that happened in titan souls or at the end of titan souls or to a boss in titan souls and uh that all is there but you don't have to have that to enjoy this game so i'm going to leave it there for now and we can revisit it later all right i gotcha Well, getting back to the combat, because that's what you do in this game, is you bash things with swords or hammers (laughs) or umbrellas. 
exactly. You do have a variety of weapons that you'll pick up and um, uh, utilize throughout the course of your adventure to reap these three giant souls and open death's door. Um, but for my money, you know, I, I kind of just stuck with the first weapon. You know, I, I love this game's combat, and the the weapons that they give you do have sort of a variation in terms of the strength they hit with, the quickness that you can swing them with, and the reach that they have. But at the end of the day, they're all pretty well balanced. They're also, I also kind of feel pretty similar as well. Like the hammer hits harder, but you only get two combo attacks. Like the differences between the weapons was certainly not as vast or important as, say, Hades. Yeah, or say any of the Souls games, really. Um, mm -hmm. I, and you know, that's a, those are both really like high bar comparisons that we're making. Um, for example, in a Zelda-like game, you only have the sword. So, you know, we're comparing sword to sword. But I, I, I generally, as I said, just kept with the starting sword. And as you said, they're, they're pretty comparable. So um, regardless, they all look great. And depending on how you like to battle and like the feel of each weapon, you can choose which one suits your play style. Um, but for me, it was that starting sword. Now it worked for me too. Uh, in terms of like your initial move set that you start off with this you have your, like your light attack your heavy attack a roll and a roll into a heavy attack i think that's all you got and again like when i first started playing this game i'm like oh this combat system is pretty lightweight but it's that simplicity that's so tight and polished and works so well they figure out good ways to introduce variety into the encounters that it really works there's one thing you forgot about starting off with, and that is your arrow, your first ranged attack. And that is really key to this whole game because all of the abilities you get basically fill the same slot, which is your secondary attack, aka your ranged attack. Magic of some sort or another. And, it, and each of them does consume either one or two pellets of your magic bar to use, which you can replenish by hitting an enemy or an item or object in the environment. So you're kind of doing this ebb and flow between using your ranged attacks, refilling your magic by hitting enemies short range or hitting some pots or um, other detritus around the arena. And, you know, finding yourself like rolling away from enemies as after doing a quick jab and then firing off a couple arrows or a firebolt or something like that really like it becomes really rhythmic and it's extremely satisfying once you start to feel the mastery there. It reminded me a lot of Hades. Uh, yeah, definitely really good combat. Like you talk about the individual parts and it doesn't, it, it's not clear how it adds up to how good the combat is, but I I think it's a combat design. I think it's just so feels so good in the hands when you're doing those basic things. And I think it's partially because the enemies aren't super varied. If you were going up against a new enemy every encounter, you wouldn't have that kind of like rhythmic, I know what to do or how to dodge or how to manage this enemy. I think also in thinking about their um, 
their simple combat mechanics is I think it's notable two things they did not include in the move set. Uh, the first is any sort of heal spell. Even like a Hollow Knight, you retreat and go and heal and consume some energy for a little bit. And the second is any sort of block or parry sort of thing. There's a dodge, and the dodge gives you some invulnerability frames and all that, but um, you are always moving. You are n- never stationary in this game. Yeah, absolutely. And that dodging aspect is extremely important because you are not a tank in this game and you can never Ah. be one. You're a bird. You're a crow. You get hit. It's a meaningful hit. Uh, You start off with only four hits. Uh, Every enemy, uh, to only a few exceptions, does one pellet of damage regardless of their size or how hard they hit you. Some of them do two, I think. I can't remember exactly. But every hit is a danger. You can't make mistakes. Oh, for sure. Like, uh, this is the old school definition of health for a character. It's a number of mistakes you can make from back in the Super Nintendo days or Nintendo days and all that. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really great for that. Uh, you mentioned that you start off with four health. I actually ended with four health. Uh, this isn't <laughs> like um, one of the differences between this and Zelda, which everyone calls this a Zelda like. I disagree with that. But uh, there's no like tanking pieces of heart at the end of the game by the end of the game or anything you um you're you are able to increase your health but it's not something that you accidentally stumble into you have to quest for to get that fifth heart no absolutely uh you you can get a maximum of eight upgrades to your health in this game which net you an extra two total pellets on your starting uh uh, count of four so you can get a grand total of six hearts imagine finishing uh a link to the past with six hearts and you basically have the idea of what we're looking at here <laughs> i think that's one of the reasons people talk about this game as being difficult is because um there's no like you've leveled up so much that these guys are a pushover now and you can just breeze through it or sleepwalk through these guys you've always got to know what you're doing well, yeah, I agree with that, and and what I appreciate about it is it doesn't do the the thing we just talked about in in Metroid Dread, where you're just sort of slowly leveling up your health pool, and also the enemies are leveling up how hard they hit, and also their health pool is leveling up, and you're leveling up how hard they hit. So everything ends up feeling the same, despite the fact that you're leveling up your, you know, your respective bars and numbers of damage <laughs> that you're doing. This game calls it as it is. Nothing ever changes. Exactly. At least it's honest about it. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, to that end, like, it's very simple in that, too. We could call this a small numbers RPG by that that metric. Um, But the game does have extremely incremental ways for you to increase the efficacy of your character. And by that, I mean you have four stats that are extremely onerous to upgrade, and they are strength, which is how hard you swing your sword, a modicum of increase in damage, dexterity, which is milliseconds of increase in swiftness of how fast you swing your sword, haste, which will... It says it increases your dodge roll timing. I never noticed it. And also increases your base speed. Probably the most useful thing. And magic. the How hard you hit with the ranged abilities. And while I upgraded several of these throughout my playthrough, after I did it, I never noticed it. (laughs) I think I noticed one of the strength upgrades when uh, the starting area enemies went from taking three hits to kill to two. 
<laughs> I mean, that's good, I guess, right? Um, that is more than you would see in, um, I guess, uh, Metroid Dread, because they will just increase the strength of those enemies. <laughs> you would never <laughs> notice it. But um, yeah, I, uh, I, I don't know why this is here. I don't think this system was particularly additive, but I guess they had to have you use the souls that you reaped on something. Which really was not even like the souls you reaped. You'd get like one soul from each schmuck enemy that you'd beat. And then from the bosses or from treasure chests, you could get like 100 souls at a time or 500 souls at a time. And that's when you go and cash it in because you, I guess you could grind out some levels ups in this game, but that'd be ah, painful. Yeah, that'd be miserable. I think like the vast majority of upgrades I did to my stats were, as you said, from treasures and maybe bosses. Um, yeah, it, enemies are a pittance in terms of what you're getting uh, in terms of currency to upgrade your character. So grinding, not going to not gonna be a big, big deal in this game. So here's a question for you. Um, first off, I'm going to start with a story that one of the lead developers of this gave a talk to our interview with Nintendo Life or something like that about like the legacy of Zelda hmm. and all that. And was talking about different things that make a Zelda-ish game. And one of them was there is no leveling up. Uh, because, you know, in a Zelda game, you don't actually level up. There's no experience points or anything like that. Uh, I feel like they put this in here, but why? Was it to say we're not a Zelda thing? Was it to give some meaning to searching for treasure chests because you could get those big chunks of souls there. Uh, that's the best reason I can think of for it, but really it it didn't seem like I could really modify my play style much. Although, to be fair, I did level them up in order, so I was never really like glass cannon or anything like that. You oh know? man, are you kidding? I had a build. I was going full strength all the way. That was the only one I could even imagine being useful. So, <laughs> um, But to your point, I agree that I think the only reason this is here is to give people a reason to explore. Because um, if you're not... If you don't give them a mechanical reason to explore, they're less likely to do it. But the true joy of exploring in this game is just seeing everything. Like It is really beautiful. And you do uncover some interesting environmental storytelling when you're doing some of that exploration as well. Uh, there's a lot more there than you might initially think. And on top of that, the game just is full of interesting quirks, and the world is really sort of like we said before, maybe can feel disjointed, but it's also really compelling and unique compared to a lot of the video game, you know, high fantasy type things that might be the more stock standard version of this game. Yeah, there's no um, elves and dwarves and goblins in standard fantasy uh, fare here. Mm -hmm. We're going much more towards a Grimm's fairy tale crossed with, um, you know, I don't even know, like surreal um, tone for for the game's world and it is fun to explore you know they they do make uh, a lot of what you're doing throughout the course of it not just fighting your way through areas but finding ways to traverse it opening up pathways by lighting torches to open gates or blowing up walls with bombs or using a hook shot to you know the hook shot is the final upgrade you get uh, allowing you to traverse gaps and things like that and to, to my mind I think that's probably what they're going for when they said hey this is sort of zelda like it's you don't level up you increase your verb set in order to you know uh upgrade your character's uh, you know ability to navigate the world 
uh, I'll push back on that a little. Well, no, I suppose there was the three magic upgrades. You get the fireball, the bomb, and the hookshot, and all of those are used in different ways to clear new paths through the world. Um, I will say, though, that that is really only fully realized if you go back and backtrack and you're trying to get the 100% on this game and the secret ending and all of that, which I didn't go for myself, but like once I got the hookshot, I didn't go back to the Urn Witch Mansion to try to use the hookshot in places that are now available for that. Uh, no, to be fair, I didn't either. Um, this game does, you know, leave a lot of breadcrumbs and, uh, you know, trails for you to pursue and backtrack to if you so desire, but you're never required to to finish the, the base game and get credits, really. I do want to circle back to something you said earlier about the shortcuts that open up as you go through a level. Like, even without the abilities, you can kick down a ladder mm-hmm. or you can open a door or something like that. And I loved that about I love this ladder game. Kicking. Ladder kicking is the new... It, it's the... It is the video game verb of the 2010s and, and beyond for my money. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the uh, the way they made these levels, like you would l- loop out and loop back and that would be a whole section and then you kick down a ladder and then if you die again, which you're going to die again, this is a difficult game, then you can just climb up the ladder to go there. You don't have to repeat sections that you've cleared already and it's not done in like a... Um, I guess a kind of checkpointing system where you just start out, you you start out at the place, you know, a couple of rooms before you died. You start off at the beginning, but then you can just walk right back to where you died again. Yeah, the, the checkpointing, or rather lack of checkpointing, was um, really well observed in that they obviated it by by doing this clever level design and allowing you to create shortcuts as you go um so definitely agree with that um always here for a ladder kick or a one-way <laughs> door that suddenly opens from the other side for some reason um i don't know why it just works um to that end though um i did want to mention one thing that appears in these environments that goes along with uh, the health aspect that we talked about earlier and that is the fact that you can't really do as you said in um Hollow Knight, like move away, use some energy to restore health. In this game, you can only replenish health in a dungeon by planting a seed first, and then uh, for every run, that seed grows a plant that will allow you to consume it and regenerate your health pool. So what this means is you have a limited number of seeds and you need to plant them strategically to decide where you want to have a health regenerator. See, I feel like this could have been a great mechanic, but I was never lacking for seeds. I absolutely finished the game with like 15 of them. So yeah, same boat. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like um, I would come across a pot and I'm like, oh, I'm at full health. No need to use a seed here. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it, it was a cool idea and a cool way to restore health at certain areas. But I feel like it wasn't the effect they were going for. I agree with that. I I think this is a cool idea, poorly implemented, Um, just by the nature of, like, I don't think they should have made it more harsh, because I think they struck a pretty good balance with the ability to restore health and the difficulty of the areas. And I especially think it was uh, a good choice and an interesting choice that they didn't allow you to have any access to health restoration during boss fights. So uh, you could really 
you could have a health regenerator right before the entrance to a boss. Sure, probably a good idea, but you're not going to plant one in a boss arena or something like that. Yeah, I feel like that really made the boss fights it really up to the tension when you know, like, there's no healing here. This is the number of mistakes I get to make and how I'm reading the attacks and the situation. And after that, I got to start over again. Absolutely. And I, I guess uh, since we're already talking about bosses, let's uh, let's talk a bit more about the same. I remember three main bosses. There's the gigantic house thing uh, that you fight at the beginning. Then you fight the Urn Witch, the Frog King, the Yeti Betty, and the uh, Lord of Door is all at the end of it. That's right. I love Betty the Yeti. Who can forget? Um, but yeah, yeah, those are the, those are the main ones. Um, the you know, Guardian Witch Frog Betty. And then the final boss. Oh, the Grey Crow. How could we forget the Grey Crow? Oh, the Grey Crow, yes. Yeah. He didn't have a dungeon, that's why. That's why, yep. Um, But yeah, all of these bosses are preceded by a dungeon, and um, all of them basically are uh, a route that you are except the Grey Crow, I guess. But all of them uh, have, you know, some environmental storytelling and lore, some puzzles that, generally speaking, stay pretty basic. And they're preceded by like an overworld section where you're navigating through to, to get to them. Um, there's no map in this game, which sometimes, you know, at the beginning of the, the game confused the shit out of me. But uh, eventually you sort of understand the lay of the land and it's not that complex of a world. So I got it eventually. Especially when it keeps looping back on itself with the different shortcuts. Um, even if you're, you don't know where you are, you aren't far from somewhere where you've been and you know. Yep, that's absolutely true. I did think it was interesting how in each uh, of the main dungeons, they had a few different things that were recurring. One, you would do a trip back to the Reaping Commission to get some sort of interstitial lore and backstory to what happened to cause things to be as screwed up as they are when you arrive at the Reaping Commission. And two, at the end of that type of section, you would usually find the chest Avarice, as you said, which would be like a combat arena dungeon that you were forced to contend with before you got that area's ability upgrade. And without um, any exception, those Avarice combat arenas were the most exciting parts for me. They were really fun. (laughs) (laughs) The game's really able to throw the, like, ramp the combat up to 11 with those things you know like um it knows you're in a controlled environment it knows you're coming in at full health or if you aren't you're not far away from it when you die Mm -hmm. so you come back in with full health and it really pushes your abilities and your limits there Mm -hmm. yeah it was the uh yeah it was the first time that i realized like oh wow this combat's actually really good yeah yeah it definitely it is the showcase like if you play one thing in this game and like want to know what to take away from it mechanically the avarice uh sections are the ones that i would would say do that like they are the games um that one perfect moment that sort of crystallizes what the game's really trying to be One of the things I liked about the dungeons that preceded each of the bosses was that the um, it wasn't just a single theme environment sort of thing. Like, um, you'd go through two or three different kind of 
areas uh, before you would get to the final boss there. Like for the Frog King, you go through the jungle and then the sunken fortress. And then I think there was one more as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was, yeah, the, the jungle, the temple, and the sunken fortress. And yeah, I agree with that. I really like how they sort of... Um, it was definitely a hub-and-spoke model for how the game's overall structure went. You know, you're always going back to that main uh, sort of graveyard, lost cemetery area where you met uh, Steadhone, the grave digger, and then you're venturing yeah. out uh, to conquer each of the three main big souls. And, and as you said, they have their own run-up. They're all very uh, different and disparate from each other. My personal favorite was the Stranded Sailor region where you sort of have this seaside bar that's occupied by a quote-unquote sailor who has a <laughs> mysterious uh, octopus suckling at the back of his head the entire time. <laughs> the squid's dream is just to be a cook. So he's uh, got this corpse that is certainly a bipedal human. Why wouldn't he be a bipedal human just like you? Uh, and he makes you soup. Exactly. And there's actually some post-game content uh, that you have where you can uh, take him on a little quest of your own with him attached to the back of your little crow, um, which, <laughs> which I, that was some of the, uh, I only did a little bit of the post-game content, but that was one of it. And it was really fun. Um, love that region. Love the vibe there. Really great music. Um, worth mentioning, right, you know, really at any point in this, we could have said this, but the music in this game is superb. Uh, the composer, David Fenn, um, who or really did a, a bang-up job on this soundtrack, uh, I didn't really notice it while I was playing through it, but it, it has the ability to sort of be chill when um, exploration calls for it, and then once you're at the, one of those run-ups to a boss like we were talking about, they can just immediately turn it on and make things feel extremely epic. It's, uh, it's really a feat. I think one of the funny things is we both loved the soundtrack, but different aspects aspects of it uh brian shared a few of his favorite songs with me uh before we did this podcast and i thought they were good songs uh for <laughs> sure but like the ones i liked the best was just like the chill piano playing while you're in the office like that really set the somber mood for me yeah no absolutely i i think i and that might have been one of them. No, maybe it wasn't one of the ones I sent you, but I know the exact track you're talking about in the warbling on the piano. The da 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 And it's a thematic score, too, or rather a um, a score that has a common theme running throughout it. Um, I can't remember the name for that right now. But... Um, leitmotif. Yes, leitmotif. Thank you. Um, and it is really well utilized in this soundtrack. Um, I... Yeah, I can, yeah, can't say enough about how, how great this soundtrack worked for the game at hand. You know, it just elevated every portion of it. Despite what I said earlier, those boss fights do have some real bangers of some songs going on with them, which was great because they were bangers of boss fights, too. They were. They are, the boss fights uh, were always a check, like, and they never felt impossible or that you couldn't surmount them with what you had at hand because, you know, to be frank, you're not leveling up a ton throughout the course of this game. So I think you are you had to go into them, and you probably were going to die the first time you fought it, but you also probably thought, okay, I understand this moveset now. I think I could probably go back in there and, and make this happen. You know, for all of them except for one for me, the Lord of Doors had this... Um, I think there was one movie had that I don't think was telegraphed 
well enough or, or something like you can attack him to break it. Um, but like I would hit him once and I didn't know I was supposed to like just wail on him at that time. So outside of Lord of Doors, uh, yes, I feel like the bosses were very fair in how they played and how they showed and presented themselves. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, Lord of Doors maybe didn't telegraph very well that specific aspect. But one thing that I mentioned in passing, but I want to highlight is something that I think this game did consistently. And it every time they did it, it worked for me for some reason is the run up to the boss gauntlet. Like, there was always a portion where, you know, the boss generally in the dungeons were would be taunting you or talking to you throughout the course of your making your way through it. And then right as you started to approach their final domain, um, they would like say, all right, you know, come and get me or something along those lines. Like, hey, I'm going to have crow soup tonight, says the frog with a side of truffle because, you know, chef makes great truffles or whatever (laughs) and um then the music turns on and you fight your way through like this extremely good combat gauntlet that makes use of uh whatever power you just got in that dungeon and you know as i the music swells you finally make your way to the boss and then you have you know that that epic boss fight i just think they they did a really good job of escalating the stakes as you made your way throughout a given area in this game it was they did it every time I should have recognized the trick by the third or fourth time they did it, but it kept working on me. <laughs> no, I feel like that is a good point. Uh, I don't think the Yeti showed up any earlier, but for the frog and the witch, mm-hmm. um, both of them were really cool. Like, when you first, you don't meet them at the end of their dungeons. You meet them at, like, the beginning. Like, right. you show up to the witch's mansion, and she's like, oh, shit, what's the Reaper doing here? Hi, <laughs> hi, how you doing? Hey, so nice to stop by. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and then she's like what do you want what's going on and there's like a little I don't know back and forth throughout the whole thing over there it f- makes them feel like more more characters than these bosses normally are how much of a character can you be when you're like stuck in a box the whole time and you get like a 10 second intro cinematic before you do your fight Exactly. Like, I have no uh, affection for Dodongo, despite the fact that I've fought him in, like, six different Zelda games at this point. But I I do have a lot of affection for Grandma, because she talked to me for a a few different lines throughout the course of me navigating her manor and destroying all of her pots. Or urns, (laughs) excuse me. (laughs) Her precious, precious urns. Yes. And uh, not only that, but they also introduce you to her grandson, Pothead. Who everyone loves. (laughs) Actually, this was my favorite side character, too, in the game. Um, You meet this... He's like this valiant knight who has a pot for a head. Um, And you're like, what's going on? And he eventually tells you his very sad and tragic story about his grandmother, who is the urn witch of the mansion. About how she tried to make him immortal by turning his head into an urn. Sure, why not? Uh, (laughs) But like she was drunk or she messed up or something and she turned his head into a pot instead. Which is full of delicious soup, which he just so happens to offer you. And you politely decline. <laughs> and to that point, I think like we we talked a little bit about um, some of these characters, but this game basically through and through every character you're introduced to is, you know, extremely well written and, and well realized. This game doesn't have a lot of dialogue and writing in it, but what it has is really really great it's succinct and it really effectively characterizes each of these people you're coming upon um and it just one of those things that 
it punches above its weight class in terms of how memorable it is, despite how slight it is. Yeah, the characters are definitely... Um, they, they don't seem bog standard by any means. Uh, you get a major side character... Or sorry, you get a side character for each of the major three dungeons uh, that acts as a sort of guide and lore builder a little <laughs> bit. Uh, just to drip out a tiny bit of information... You, you never have to read a paragraph when you're playing this game, but no. a sentence or two here and there, and you uh, do that often enough, um, you don't even have to talk to them, but it gives you a little bit of flavor when you do. Yeah, yeah. We talked about uh, uh, Steadhone. We talked about Pothead. Uh, one that we didn't mention yet, Barb the Bard, uh, who writes a shitty song about you killing Betty the Yeti. <laughs> 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 I mean... Just saying that sentence makes me smile. It's just a funny little thing. <laughs> now, uh, great si- great NPCs in this game. Like my favorite uh, off ink loving or uh, form loving crow back in the office. He's like, you you just uh, you just destroyed a door. This is this is going to be so much paperwork. I can't wait. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, we all know someone like that, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> This game does have a really good sense of humor, and it just just doesn't play in the writing, but also the animation, too. I really loved the crow's animations uh, during some of the cinematics, like when the um, when you'd go through an avarice chest and you'd gain a new ability and it would come floating down on you from the heavens. The crow is just really rapidly, like, looking at it from extremely different angles with its head cocked 90 degrees to the side or something like that, and then in another instant from some other angle. Uh, Just very crow-like and good, like, I don't know, physical comedy, if you want to call it that. Yeah, and it's it's also sort of true to life about a crow, right? Like when you think of a bird observing something, they're often like doing the little head tilt, cocking their head, looking left to right. It just, um, it all tracks really well. Like these are just well-realized characters from from top to bottom, from writing to animation. Um, but to that end, um, as you said, despite the fact that the game can have a great sense of humor, it can also be really grim at times. You know, a lot of these characters are extremely tragic. Um, your least favorite guy, Lord of Doors, has a, a pretty, one, grim motivation, but also a pretty grim backstory. Like, he had a pretty, like, shit deal going on with, um, you know, he he wasn't brought into this world. He was created by the previous Lord of Doors and didn't want to die, so made a deal to extend his life and uh, a lot of treachery and skullduggery later we're in this world where death can't exist because death is sealed away and uh, eventually you upend that but it's just a there's a lot of discussion of death and if this game didn't have so much levity in it it would be an extremely dark game it's because of the mix of humor and uh, sobriety uh, or uh, sombriety sombriety um, that um, really makes the tone, like it really nails the tone of talking about death. Like it's um, it's not even having the humor there necessarily as like, a, oh, just a break in the tension of talking about death, but as part of its view of death, if you will, view of death and of life, mm. of them being two sides of the same coin over there and you can easily imagine like an indie game that takes a very somber and serious look at death like doesn't have the same 
humor in it because it doesn't fit in the game but the humor fits in this game very well and it's because it's not looking at death as an end or as a grieving experience but rather as like a natural part of life yeah that was exactly what i was going to say is it's uh putting death as part of a natural cycle and the impetus for this game's action is that cycle being disrupted um so yeah, as as you said, it's it can be a, a sad event, but it also is something that's entirely natural. Um, the game that I kept thinking back to, in contrast to how this game handles death, is Spiritfarer, which is all about sort of acceptance and uh, moving on. Whereas this game is, um, you know, basically in agreement with that, but it's about setting things right in terms of death is natural, and we need to, um, you know, safeguard that as part of the natural order of things. Um, so it's interesting, you know, we, we've played, as you said, a lot of games that reference death is and, and view it in different perspectives and use game mechanics to explore it in different ways. Um, I think Spiritfarer is probably much more interested in exploring that mechanically than this game is, but, um, this game's story was interested in, um, exploring it as a, as a topic of, you know, just the facts of life, which I thought was interesting. One of the things I very much appreciated in this game that I don't recall being done anywhere else is that after each boss fight, um, from the beginning to the end, uh, after you win, there is Stead the Grave Digger, mm. who gives mm-hmm. a short eulogy to the person. And I thought, 201, they were all touching. Yeah, they were all really good. And they actually told you a lot more about the character. Um, for example, if you if you hadn't absorbed it throughout the course of the dungeon or by talking to various NPCs, the eulogies at the end of every dungeon were a nice way to sort of catch up on the fact that, you know, Pothead became the way he, he was because of his grandmother's uh, care and concern for him eventually having to face death himself. And, you know, the as you said, they were all... They were all uniquely touching and really illuminated an aspect about the character, usually a positive one, as a good eulogy does. Despite the fact of how someone's life may have ended, that they all are going to have portions of their life that they can be um, lauded for. And I think uh, those eulogies did that. Well, even for the Frog King, who was acknowledged as like a tyrant in his eulogy, um, the gravedigger went on to talk about how, like, no matter how powerful you are in life, death comes for us all. You know, we're all equals there. And, it, you know, not like a straight up eulogy, but still like a uh, recognition of that fundamental truth. Yeah, a service. Um, there were more funerals in this game than most. <laughs> um, yeah, usually death is just sort of one of those things in a game where you... Um, you know, you defeat the enemy, you're triumphant and move on. But this game was uh, not satisfied with, you know, the da 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 now you get the treasure and move on. Um, it, it had to, to wallow in the consequences of your actions, which uh, is refreshing. You uh, teased some Titan Soul connection earlier. Yeah. So despite the game's um, focus on on death, its consequences, and its necessity, um, 
and the need for a cycle. What this game really is doing is continuing on a story that was told long ago, back in 2015, uh, with Titan Souls. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of nods to, to Titan Souls in this game. Um, I don't know if you clocked this, but Avarice, who we have mentioned as the treasure chest that will, one, give you your abilities, but two, is a mimic-like treasure chest that swallows you whole. He was a boss in Titan Souls. Um, straight up, same name, same everything. Exact same, like, model, except it's 3D now. <laughs> so yeah, that was actually really confusing why they would call that part Avarice. Right. I mean, it, it kind of makes sense, because Avarice, word for greed, greed, treasure, treasure chest, you know, it, it kind of connects, but Avarice was the name of that boss in Titan Souls. Um, on top of that, Betty the Yeti um, appears to be a descendant of the Yeti boss in Titan Souls as well. There was a Yeti boss in that game who uses a very similar moveset. Um, the frog is wearing the armor of one of the final bosses of Titan Souls. Uh, it's just on a frog now instead of a knight. <laughs> um, and the true ending of this game, uh, final spoiler warning alert, is a direct reference to the character in... Um, Titan Souls and the actions that they had therein. You know, the basically the final entity that you interact with as a result of the, the true ending of um, Death's Door uh, is uh, also the same entity, sort of the all-seeing eye entity that is in uh, the ending of Titan Souls. So they're direct... This is a direct sequel to Titan Souls despite being sort of a 10,000 years in the future style sequel, maybe like um, mm -hmm. like Star Wars is to um, KOTOR or something like that. But um, it's interesting. I think it was uh, an interesting choice for them to basically find a way to uh, have a completely different game and yet still draw it back into the Titan Souls cinematic universe, if you will. I don't know where that's going or if they're going to you know, continue to have that payoff in their future games, but I like it when uh, a dev sort of makes nods to its longtime fans despite it not being necess or necessary for enjoying the experience. Oh, great. Uh, cool. I don't want to trivialize them by calling them Easter eggs, but uh, thanks for the people who have played Titan Souls and enjoyed that and are following along with the devs' work. Little nods for them. Absolutely. And, you know, it does progress sort of the overall, you know, grand lore and tapestry of the world they're creating. So kudos to them for that and having sort of a broad vision of what they're creating. Um, I certainly would not have had that foresight when I got a call out of the blue from Devolver and said, pitch your game jam game to me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but you know, that's why these guys are special and I think they make really good stuff. And with that, uh, let's knock our bowstrings and fire off a three word review. Alright, my three-word review for this game is Concentrated Crow Quest. Death's Door is a game that essentializes the action-adventure formula, much like Hyper Light Drifter did before it. It features tight combat that strikes the exact right balance between simplicity and difficulty, between pattern and novelty. It has the dungeon boss formula down, even if those dungeons span multiple environments and levels. Even the levels themselves are concentrated, often looping back and winding back on themselves to provide easy shortcuts for what is admittedly a difficult game. It does this all not in blind homage to Zelda, but by striking out on its own path. 
It ditches the Zelda formula in places where it would complicate rather than concentrate. Add in charming art and music to the combat and level design, and you end up with an excellent modern take on a venerable genre. I absolutely agree. And Hyperlight Drifter is the game whose name I can never remember that I always want to bring up in reference to games like this, because it absolutely <laughs> reminded me of it, too. <laughs> uh, good call out. My three-word review is Elegance in Simplicity. Throughout my time with Death's Door, I could not get over how polished it felt. The art style was clean, clear, yet detailed. The controls were tight, responsive, yet simple and natural. The music, wow, the music always fit the area and mood perfectly. It was like Death's Door was hitting all the right notes on one of my favorite songs. The only thing I can complain about is that, sadly, it didn't really do anything new mechanically. Everything, the combat, the puzzles, the traversal, all implemented perfectly, yet familiar. From my perspective, the bones here could support some more complex mechanics and dungeon crawling, but for the runtime of Death's Door, this struck the balance it needed to to feel elegant in its simplicity. I hope the developers decide to open yet another door on their way to even greater heights of game development. And with that, I want to say thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to share it with folks you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to get in touch, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at pixelplaypod. And for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Kalecki. Take care and keep on gaming. One of the little touches I loved was the um, typography of oh, this game. Yeah. Um, like, whenever you died, which was often, it would cut to the word death, but it would be <laughs> on a black background, and the letters would be like camera cutouts into the scene where you just died, so you could see your corpse and all the enemies like jeering around you. You know, it's interesting. Um, the little details like that, the typography the stylistic aspects of the game like that's part of the reason it actually became popular in the first place i don't know if you remember this but there was a, a gif an animated gif going around on um, twitter about a uh, character reading the sign cutting it in half and then reading it again and seeing the text cut in half and <laughs> the dev said that that was viewed more times than their trailer was <laughs> so. i believe it i believe it it's um you can get something viral going on twitter and getting your name out there like getting people aware of your game is the first step of the battle yeah i mean like something like that like where you're just showcasing the fact that hey you know we put a lot of thought into how we're implementing this world and showing little neat details about how uh the player can find surprising little things in it i think weirdly that was like the perfect microcosm of what death store did end up delivering on you know it's extremely polished and more detailed in places you don't expect it to be than than might you might initially expect one of the things i liked too was the uh boss title cards that showed up like <laughs> this is introduced a couple of times straight like uh you fight the demonic forest spirit or the um 
Cathedral of Doors or whatever, or Guardian of Doors. Uh, and those are your first two bosses. And then next you're fighting the Urn Witch. Uh, but then you um, you learn that that's like the Pothead's grandmother. So when her boss title card shows up, it says, Grandma. <laughs> or like uh, when the Frog King shows up, his um, his title card says, King of the Swamp, Guardian of the Flooded Fortress. Lord of his domain, ruler of all he surveys, champion of the people, keeper of the five oaths. First of his name, second of his other name. And just goes <laughs> on and on, and the font goes smaller and smaller. And it's like, um, it's, it's more like world building and personality building over there, using what is typically a standard, like, video game thing, like, title card, boss name, there you go, go fight him. Yeah, like, in Zelda Ocarina of Time, it's Goma, Corrupted Tree Spirit. Instead, you know, you have a paragraph of bullshit for the frog guy and then at the end it says okay i hit the word limit we're done now <laughs> um but yeah definitely a ton of character in those and, and a huge uh, feather in the cap of the writers 